Hey, Misfits. Welcome back to the Misfits and Mysteries podcast. We are your weekly podcast for all things weird and wacky from Bigfoot and aliens to psychology and history and everything in between. We are your hosts, Emmy and Steve. So, Steve, how are we doing? Good. I'm doing well. We have a great episode for you guys today. Yeah. We're not going to beat around the bush here. This is important. Are you ready? <laughs> Loch Ness Monster is probably a whale's penis. I so, want you to tell everyone. All right. So someone we follow and follows us back. They're great people. I actually like their podcast. It's Canadian Spirit. I forgot which one of them runs the account, but let me, let me pull it up exactly. Oh, wait. I can just go to our profile so I retweeted it. Basically, they found this thing. as a picture of the Loch Ness Monster next to a picture of a whale's penis, and they're identical. It is actually disgusting. The Loch Ness Monster is actually a whale's penis. What I don't understand about this is why is it just the penis out of the water what was happening in that moment i don't know but after seeing this there's nothing you can tell me that convinces me otherwise that this isn't a photo of a whale's penis <laughs> the lioness monster is just a whale's massive dick and that would make sense why there's so much underneath the water because there's a full yeah, whale the whole fucking whale you're only seeing the erection <sighs> yeah it's pretty devastating We've never really covered it. I don't think we can ever cover Nessie now because Nessie's just a penis. Just a, a just a dick. Big old schlong. Yeah, that's tough. Nessie's dead. Nessie's dead. Nessie's dead in our eyes. It's very just, sad. It's just a penis, which I'm just so bummed about. All right. To change the topic and get us less bummed. Are you ready? Yeah. I have a hypothetical for you that I came up with the other day while I was fishing. Okay. So, Emmy, if you were born part human, part animal, what animal would you choose? And what two features of that animal would you have? You'd be like a human except for these two features. Do I get two different animals or just- No, it's one animal with two features of the animal. Because you know, like a lion is fast and strong and has claws. Those are three separate things. Okay. So I think I'd be something with wings- Mm-hmm. Maybe a bat. Ooh, so bat girl. Wings and echolocation. Bats are pretty sick. They are. And they so, also have incredible immune systems. That's why they are harborers of such bad diseases, actually, is because they just don't get sick because their immune systems are incredible. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't be a bird because birds aren't real. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that would be a robot. Yeah, exactly. No, I think a bat would be pretty cool. That's my answer. What features of the bat? The wings and the echolocation. Nice. I've thought this through long and hard. I have the answer I want. I would be part grizzly bear and I'd take the grizzly bear's size and speed. A grizzly bear is about seven foot tall and weighs about 800 pounds and it can run 35 miles an hour. Okay, so what are you going to do with this? That would translate perfectly to professional sports because that's the only shot I ever had playing football. If I weigh a thousand pounds and run 35 miles an hour, the next heaviest guy weighs 400 pounds. There's literally not a scenario where I get tackled. Hurt someone. I would, I would, there's no scenario where I get tackled. Literally kill someone. Yeah. If someone made impact on me, it'd be like a car crash. That's what you want. That's what you'd prefer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll be the fastest man on the planet. Violent. I'll be the biggest dude on the planet. That sounds very violent. But I could also run in the Olympics. Literally no human can run 35 miles an hour. I can be an Olympian. I could be a professional track runner. I could be a professional track runner. 
could be a professional football player. I could be professional rugby. Actually, maybe not rugby because I think I'd actually murder people without pads. What if I became an octopus and just had eight legs? <laughs> Would you still be I my friend? Yes, I actually think you'd become significantly slower. Yeah. <laughs> what about eight arms? You could do a lot with eight arms. Yeah, you could do a lot of multitasking. Think of how many words per minute you could type. But would I use all eight hands on the keyboard at once? You have two keyboards. Your right hand's going to be a special keyboard computer. for me. Yeah. Think of everything you could write. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, maybe well, also that'd be great too because human shoulders suck so if one shoulder went you have seven more so i'd choose the arms and the ink so Ooh. someone's pissing me off just ink them fuck <laughs> <laughs> off I was originally being like a cheetah because i yell the speed but then i thought but why do i need to go 85 miles an hour when i go 35 miles an hour and be an absolute tank that's almost too fast you don't want to be running alongside a car I want to be speeding in a school zone. I don't want to be speeding on a highway. Maybe that would save you a lot of time if you could run everywhere. That is true. But if I have the speed of a grizzly bear, I can run everywhere at 35 miles an hour, which is not bad. Yeah, but you could travel long distances in a short amount of time if you were able to run 85 miles an hour. That is true. Well, that's my answer. Let us know what you guys would do. And this is a great segue. Let us know on our Reddit. We now have a Reddit page. We're trying to make a real community here. R slash Misfits and Mysteries. We have a subreddit. It's your way to stay connected to us, see what's going on with all of our production and whatnot. And we're hoping it's a place for you guys to become friends with each other and send us articles, topic ideas, and just overall engage with us and the community. It's pretty sweet. I love Reddit. I like just during covid discovered reddit and i love it everyone's been really nice to us for the most part actually on reddit which is not what i was expecting i was expecting to hate it but mm-hmm. everyone seems pretty nice and if you're a redditor and listening to us come join our subreddit make it more of a community make it feel like home what do we have on the docket today emmy so we are talking with dr jeff mildrum who is a scientist and also a Bigfoot expert, which we actually just got off the phone with him. And it was a fantastic interview. Yeah. So you guys are going to love it. He is more knowledgeable about Bigfoot than anyone online is. And also, <laughs> I feel like he actually might have convinced us that Bigfoot might be real. So there's that too. You and I, we would never discount it. But yeah. after that conversation, I'm like, all right, sold. <laughs> yeah, I feel the exact same way. So you guys are to check it out. It was awesome. We had him for a little under like an hour and a half. He's a great dude. He gave us some great advice. And we had a lot of fun talking to him. Yeah. And then what are you talking about? I am talking about, it's kind of a hodgepodge of a segment. But I'm talking about underground tunnels generally. Nice. I love how you have the vaguest topic imaginable. I'm all in on it. But before we get started, we're going to play a voicemail for you later this episode. So don't forget to leave us a voicemail. Our voicemail box number is 914-627-8582. Leave us a ghost story. Tell us an urban legend. Have you seen Bigfoot? Call in and tell us your Bigfoot story. Tell us anything. Have you seen Bigfoot? 
But tell sorry. Us about it. <laughs> yeah, if you've seen Bigfoot, tell us about it. You know, good urban legend. Tell us about it. Just tell us about it. We'd love to have you guys call in and just tell us about urban legends, alien abductions. You see a UFO? That'd be cool too. Call and leave a message about anything. Our number is 914-627-8582. Everything's linked in the bio of the episode. And finally, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you never miss an episode. So here's our voicemail this week. And this time we have a Sasquatch story, which is on topic for this week's theme. What's up, everybody? It's your boy Mash from Hops Geek News. And this week, I've got a good Sasquatch story from my time when I was in Northwest Florida. Um, I spent some time up there in Fort Walton Beach area, Duke Field, Crestview, as a part of the Air Force. And there was always rumors that there is a Sasquatch up in that area. The rangers who trained out there swear up and down that they've seen it. One night while I was out there at one of our shops closing up, I swear there was like this big, like this giant, shadow creature thing just chilling in the woods kind of watching me i saw it kind of humble off and uh to be honest it scared the shit out of me and aside from that like i've we've seen it just driving down there's this big big creature like thing just chilling in the woods in the middle of the night if you're driving down back towards fort walton beach you probably have seen it it's uh more often than not just kind of hanging out there in the, the woods and you can kind of catch a shadow if the moon is full branches footprints hanging around our shop out there since it's kind of in the woods all sorts of things like that i'm a diehard believer in bigfoot himself even got him tattooed on me so that's kind of my non-exciting bigfoot story that i wanted to share with you all appreciate it and uh cheers everybody that was crazy yeah i can't believe that you have a tattoo of bigfoot that's dedication. That is dedication. I love that. Yeah, that is super dedication. I mean, who am I to say? I've never personally seen it, but it's cool that we got our own story or a not our own story. We got a first account. And, <laughs> and I was thinking if Bigfoot is going to exist anywhere, it's probably Florida because they just have like weird shit and weird people. Yeah, I mean, also like why wouldn't Bigfoot want to be in Florida? Florida is, I mean, Florida is not a chill place, but like there's beaches, it's really nice. It's the correct climate to have like fruit and stuff for them to eat. So I mean, it might maybe, be a little hot. It might be covered in hair. Or maybe but it's the skunk ape. Perhaps that's like Florida's version of Bigfoot. Maybe he saw a skunk ape. Maybe it's just a Florida man chilling in the woods. It could be. I would not put it past Florida to have a like seven foot tall wild man living in the woods <laughs> near an Air Force base who's just messed He's out of his out. mind. Very right. hairy dude. <laughs> wrangling alligators we gotta ask michael Womer, the gator crusader if he's ever seen bigfoot yeah this is a mashup between some of our episodes maybe it is him maybe it is the gator crusader maybe maybe i love michael he's such an awesome dude yeah we gotta interview him again at some point yeah all right well thank you nash thank you and now we're gonna hop into our interview with dr jeff meldrum 
Hey, Misfits, welcome back. We have a super special guest with us here today. It's Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He's a full professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State. He is the author of Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. He's also published two field guides, one focusing on Sasquatch and the other more broadly on hominoid species around the world. He's also the editor-in-chief of a scholarly journal about hominoids. So we're super excited to talk to you about all things Sasquatch. So welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So we've talked about Bigfoot generally, or like specific stories and whatnot. We've been holding out on the topic in general because it's really big. And we figured it's way more interesting if someone who's an expert tells us about it than if we just read stuff online. <laughs> sure. So we're so happy to have you here. Good. Well, good. I hope we'll have uh, an enlightening conversation. So can you tell us how you got interested in the subject? Well, foremost, I'm a, as you said, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I'm a, an anatomist and a physical anthropologist. So I teach human gross anatomy in the health professions to students going into occupational and physical therapy or physician's assistants, medical school or whatever. But I also research in aspects of human evolution, especially the evolution of our habit of walking on two legs or bipedal. Mm -hmm. So that was really the jumping off point for me as a professional. Now, as a youngster, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest Spokane and, and Eugene and Portland and so forth. And so I was aware of the stories. I was first introduced when Roger Patterson came through Spokane, Washington and showed his documentary showcasing that famous 90 second, 60 second mm -hmm. clip of film footage. But you know, that interest waxed and waned over the years and you know, it may have influenced my ultimate career path in some way or another, but it really became the focus of attention as my professional interest, my academic interest in the evolution of bipedalism really began to take shape and mature. Because, I mean, here you have the possibility of another bipedal hominid or hominoid that serves as a really interesting possible natural experiment in comparison and contrast between us and them to better mm -hmm. understand our condition. That's kind of the short answer. Not that short, but <laughs> much abbreviated to how I ended up as a professional academic involved in a subject that is perceived by so many as being less than academic, I guess. That's really interesting. So I guess along with that, while we're talking about like human anatomy and moving, so you're also an expert, just specifically the evolution of bipedalism and hominids and such, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And this might be a stupid question, but hear me out here. Obviously, we're probably a lot better at walking than our ancestors, you know, like homo. I'm trying to think. I love this stuff. I haven't taken it in any like official capacity since college. So it's been quite a few years, um, sure. but I, I don't remember. I don't remember how far back homo habilis is. That might be way too far back. That works. Um, that compared to us, I guess then compared to Bigfoot, like how much better are we at walking than those two would be like bipedally in efficiency? Well, sense. Well, well, right. You always have to look at, we have a tendency because we're rather egocentric or centric, mm -hmm. and that's just kind of natural. It's the way we think that <laughs> our way is the best way. Mm -hmm. So everything before us just wasn't quite as good. But I mean, those species, you mentioned Homo habilis. I mean, that, that species spanned a million years. Mm -hmm. just, there was very little change to their anatomy. So what they did worked for them. Mm -hmm. 
The first habit of walking on two legs has its uh, evidence in the fossil record and then mm-hmm. in the footprint record, you know, back as far as potentially 7 million years. And again, those species, like if you were looking at Australopithecus afarensis, mm-hmm. they walked the way they walked for a million and a half years as a species with no change. So it worked for them, you know? Yeah. So we're really good at walking the way we walk. Mm-hmm. But even then, it, it has some shortcomings. I mean, you know, you feel the effects of age and overuse and in propensity for injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, athletics, you know, our knees are pretty weak features in the kinematic chain of our musculoskeletal system. Mm-hmm. Like my uh, shoulders. Well, sure. And our shoulders. Yeah, everyone exactly. has bad shoulders. <laughs> our backs, you know, their spinal <laughs> column. So we're not, even though we've muddled along as a species, Homo sapiens, for probably 300,000 years, we're still not perfect in the way that we move. But yet, boy, the things that, you know, the human body is capable of doing. So as far as as Bigfoot goes, there's one of, of two options. One is, you know, for a long time in anthropology, it was thought that there really was only one way to walk bipedally. And so that was a very distinctive and unique trait that mm-hmm. defined mm-hmm. our family group, our broader family group. So all of our direct ancestors and immediate relatives since the divergence with ancestors of the, say, the African AIDS. So if that's true, if that is a singular characteristic of our clade, the hominin clade, then Bigfoot would have to be a hominin. And that's a, a viable hypothesis, a viable uh, proposition I think if that were the case, it would have to be a very early offshoot species that doesn't possess stone tools, a mm-hmm. material culture. It doesn't have the controlled use of fire and other accoutrements that go along with being human. That is a mm-hmm. member of the genus Homo in the broad, a human in the broadest sense. But now we know that there were other ape species that had a real propensity for standing upright, for walking on two legs. Mm-hmm. And it's very reasonable to suggest that, you know, maybe Bigfoot Sasquatch is not that closely related to us. Maybe it is just a, bi- and I shouldn't say just, but maybe it is alternately a bipedal ape, like a, you know, a gorilla-like species that has evolved a totally upright posture and, and mm-hmm. bipedalism, perhaps in part because of its large size and mass. Mm-hmm. You mentioned our shoulders. We don't return back down to all fours very readily in part because of the way our shoulder is reoriented for reaching up overhead and suspending hanging climbing Mm -hmm. with overhand overhead uh, grasping with our hands Mm -hmm. an animal with that kind of rearrangement that is all the great apes when they come to the ground they don't walk very well on all fours gorillas Mm -hmm. and chimps have this modified kind of knuckle walking where they kind of rear back on their hind legs with these exceptionally long arms, but their shoulders and elbows and wrists don't tolerate those uh, compressive forces of quadrupedalism very well. Mm, We're getting a little bit technical here, but it's it's important. I'm interested in this stuff. I hope our fans are. So I guess sort of going on that as well. So what's sort of your opinion on the existence of Bigfoot? Because sort of what I've sort of subscribed to more just because I do have a bit of a background with this stuff because I was an environmental studies major. So I took a lot of geoscience and a lot of those human evolution. So yeah. sort of the idea I subscribe to is I think it existed at one point. I find it hard to believe it exists now, but my thought is like, you know, Homo floriensis existed in, was it the Philippines for so yeah. long? 
And we're like, no, it's fake. It's fake. And they're like, oh, well, we found it. And there's this rich tradition going back so long in, in North America from all these indigenous people and even like the Paleo-Americans and whatnot that it's not crazy to me that there was this ape-like population that existed and 99.99% of everything on earth doesn't fossilize. So right. it's not out of the question that it just didn't fossilize. We have an oral tradition to back it up. Right. Well, uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm playing the semantic games here, <laughs> I'm going to be particular on your choice of words. And rather than share an opinion, which is a judgment form, sometimes in the absence of facts or knowledge, firsthand knowledge. Mm -hmm. I, one time I was doing a radio interview and uh, was sort of set up by the, the moderator, the host. And there was a caller who was taking every shot possible. And, and she was taking exception to my proposed model for the Sasquatch foot based on my study mm -hmm. of hundreds of, of footprint casts and, and my knowledge of uh, the comparative functional anatomy of humans and great okay. apes. But in the end, after, you know, banting about a little bit, she just said, well, you're entitled to your opinion. And I said, excuse me? I said, I'm not expressing an opinion. You may be expressing an opinion. I said, how many human feet have you dissected? How many great ape feet have you dissected? How many fossilized trackways have you examined? How many, you know, human and great ape, how many experiments with chimpanzee footprints have you conducted? You know, I said, when you've done all those things, you can put your opinion on par with my conclusions. Mm -hmm. so, so I have drawn conclusions based on a lot of data, a lot of study, a lot of uh, scrutiny of, of the evidence. And based on that evidence, I have concluded that, that the likelihood of such a creature existing is very high. At the very least, that we're absolutely justified in, in taking a closer look at that evidence and, and mm -hmm. examining it further. You know, are they extinct? Well, you know, it's hard to know. We still have reports and we have footprint finds that are contemporaneous. And so something's leaving those tracks. Uh, people are seeing something. I mean, and so it seems that the evidence suggests that they still exist as a species. You know, I do agree that they're very likely extremely rare. Mm -hmm. um, but your point about Homo floresiensis, excuse me, is a good one. Because when that discovery was made and the initial date of those fossils was set at, at somewhere between 13 and 18,000 years, that was just amazing. I mean, because I was asked to uh, review the paper that had been published in Nature describing the skeleton, mm -hmm. asked to review it for another journal. And, you know, as I scrutinized this very, very carefully for that review, it was immediately a clear that that skeleton, I mean, let alone the fact that, I mean, here, here's a cranium, an odd looking cranium with a brain the size of a chimpanzee. And you're <laughs> going to call it homo, you know, on, on a very, very tentative argument about some very iffy artifacts, stone artifacts, stone tools, lithics, and the possibility that maybe they had controlled fire use, which again, the argument was extremely tenuous and mm -hmm. not very, very well made, but the skeleton just screamed a different conclusion because the postcranial skeleton was clearly very primitive. Australopithecine or early habiline, homo, going back to Homo habilis, in its characteristics, and you know, it's even there preserving some very chimpanzee-like traits. So, mm -hmm. to argue 
that uh, you know the the date was pushed back a little bit further than eighteen thousand to about fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. But even that, I mean, even that, the only other you know connecting the dots, the only other dot to connect with was something like a Homo habilis in Africa two million years ago. Mm-hmm. So we've got this totally untold story of what had transpired for two million years that put that little Homo habilis in the uh, island of Flores in Indonesia mm-hmm. only 50,000 years ago. Yeah. You know, so boy, all bets were off. I mean, at that point, it was just it was so funny because it, I was actually doing a presentation in my department. It was to summarize some of the research I was doing. I was asked to, to present and there were a lot of critical people in the department. There still are, but literally just a few days before that scheduled presentation, this discovery was announced. So I, of course, I quickly inserted a couple of additional slides in my presentation as sort of a prologue to, to the presentation. And the significance of it was just absolutely lost <laughs> on this audience of, you know, very diverse biologists from biochemists to uh, community ecologists. But nevertheless, I thought, how can you not? I mean, well, of course, the fallback position is, well, they've got bones. You don't have bones. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the, the possibilities, no one can say uh, with a straight face, they can't exist, therefore they don't exist. You know, and that was often thrown in, uh, at me. And it reflected an antiquated idea in anthropology that there could be only one hominin species at any one time. And so as a result of that, human evolution was envisioned, perceived as this sort of single file march from one antecedent to its descendant and so on down the road, but never more than one in that niche, that hominin niche. We now know that is completely wrong, just flat out wrong. It's been you know, thrown out with the dishwater. We now know that the hominin evolutionary tree is not really a tree, but a bush is a much better description with lots and lots of branches diverging and, and existing in parallel and simultaneously through time. And that many of those branches have persisted alongside us until much more recently than would have ever have been imagined. Just, you know, that when, when I was beginning my studies, we were just barely coming to grips with the fact that there were gracile and robust Australopithecines coexisting across the landscape. Mm-hmm. But now, if you were to go back in a time machine and step out two million years ago, there would be half a dozen at least. And that probably far underestimates the taxonomic diversity that was mm-hmm. uh, in existence back then. Why would we think that that, that rule was the exception now? Mm-hmm. Why, would we, why would we think that the circumstances would be different in the face of so much evidence that points to the possible existence of other relic hominoids mm-hmm. so something i'm interested to hear your thoughts on it seems like in terms of credibility there's a lot of compelling footprint evidence that you found but what do you think of the video evidence i see i think you have a bob yeah. gimlin right. <laughs> and a bob gimlin video behind you and i know some of that has been hotly debated so what are your thoughts well, when it comes to the Patterson-Gimlin film, Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin, 1967, Northern California, I am uh, quite convinced, based on the evidence, I've studied that film from every conceivable angle. Well, I'm sure there's still a few left that I could figure out, but I'm as, as convinced as if I were you know, short of 
having stood there on the sandbar on that occasion to witness the actual event take place. That piece of film footage set the bar so high though, that everything that has come since has come up very, very short. Plus mm. medium has changed. So, you know, we went through a period of VHS and other digital forms of digital tape that had very low resolution, very poor quality, image quality. Mm. Now with our ever increasingly sophisticated smartphones, the quality of the pictures and uh, video images is dramatically increased. Mm. Although the photographic skills of those manning the camera are uh, woefully. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Yeah. What's the deal with it? Yeah. I can take an HD photo from my iPhone. Like it's nothing. And it's really clear. And every time someone's like Bigfoot, it's like, did you seriously need to zoom in like a thousand times? So you open the pixel level. Right. You're like, is this Bigfoot? It's like, I don't know. That could well, be that's good. it. And as with most encounters, virtually without exception, even the Patterson-Gimlin film, yes, they were in that area with that intent, but the moment of truth just kind of came on instantaneously. Uh, most encounters are absolutely spontaneous there mm -hmm. by happenstance. And so most shots, the majority that you see online, you know, they're often photobombs. Someone's taking a picture of something else. And Bigfoot stands up in the background or walks through a gap in the trees or, or something happens. The duration, the visibility, the quality, all those things, unfortunately, are, are way below what we have with the, with the Patterson-Gimlin film. And yet we're still debating it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As you point out, that's controversial. So the others are, are actually kind of, <laughs> they actually come under the radar, most of them. Few people are willing to uh, or inclined to expend a lot of sweat, a lot of uh, consternation defending or, or arguing about them because, you know, so you convince yourself. So what? I mean, in, in the scale of, of evidence, it's not, uh, it's basically fluff. Unfortunately, that's what we're saddled with. There are a few that are quite intriguing even out there. And as you mentioned, my book, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, I do touch on a couple of other pieces of video evidence, some of which were very thoroughly scrutinized, like the Memorial Day footage, which is really quite intriguing when you break it down. What is the Memorial Day footage? I don't think I know about this. It was yeah, a, I might have seen it, but yeah, a group of a group of folks were up in northern <laughs> Washington State over the Memorial Day weekend on a. Uh, I'm not sure if they were camping or if it was just a barbecue, but as they were busy doing their thing a couple people noticed this figure that kept popping up on the hillside. And it seemed to be curious about what was going on. It may have been, I think it was trying to make its way across a, a break in the forest there, because on the far side where it eventually disappears back into the trees, there's a well-trodden game trail that goes back through the trees and over a little uh, saddle into the next drainage. So the pathway and this was something you, you wouldn't appreciate unless you were actually there. And I had the chance to go and, and investigate the scene with the witnesses. That's so cool. On site. And once you get up on top, on the hillside, there's, like I said, a well-trodden game trail that this mm -hmm. thing was following. And you see this little uniformly colored figure. And it finally breaks from the cover. 
and it bolts across. It has something on its back, though, which is what's interesting. There's something on its back, and that something kind of shakes loose. And then what looks like a little leg is dangling down the side. And the individual, as she's running, and it's clearly a she, you can see in spite of the fact it's mostly just a uniform brownish silhouette, you can tell that she has breasts and they're gyrating with her stride. Her arms are pumping. And as this something on her back shakes loose, one of her arms reaches back behind and clutches that object to her back. Hmm. Well, then she disappears from view just for a moment as she comes on to a little prominence, which blocks the line of sight. And then as she emerges on the other side, this little something on her back is now in the process of climbing onto her shoulders with its head, apparent head on top of her head, looking over, and just like you would put a kid on your shoulders. Yeah, that's exactly. awesome. And so it's really quite intriguing. The film producer, Doug Hitchek, for the documentaries, Legend Meets Science, brought in a uh, crew and did a laser survey of the whole mountainside and then photogrammetrically reconstructed her eye. Well, she was only about five and a half feet tall. And so it was either a smaller female or maybe a sub-adult. Maybe it was a, an older sibling that was charged with mm-hmm. attending junior. And that's why she was so hesitant about breaking cover inside of all of these humans down there. I mean, most of the people were actually, it's kind of interesting. Most of the people were on the other side of the RVs, closer to the reservoir. And Mm -hmm. there was only a couple of people on the other side towards her that were throwing a Frisbee back and forth. And they were the ones that first noticed this person bobbing up. So anyway, it's, it's it's a piece of footage that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, except for that, you know, one documentary appearance and a little more in depth treatment in my book. Again, it doesn't tip the scales. Yeah. But it's it's really a fascinating piece. I mean, it just doesn't make any, I mean, either it was a hoax and they simply concocted somebody in a costume or it was uh, it was the real deal. And That's very interesting. Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting too, because Steve and I have talked about on the show before how you don't usually see or hear about in legends, like a female Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so it seems like if you were going to make a hoax, that wouldn't be what you chose. Well, and especially from, from our perspective, from the Anglo perspective, that the monster, the male testosterone dripping male is the more monstrous uh, figure. It is interesting, though, you say that. And I, I do have to correct you because in the Pacific Northwest, for example, there is the Tsonaqua, the cannibal giantess. And she is also characterized with Angela's breasts, just as we see in the Patterson-Gimlin film. But she's notorious for, well, she, she has these different characteristics. She brings abundance. And so the Tsonaqua is often associated with the potlatch, where mm-hmm. the chief will invite the entire tribe and show his wealth and power and authority by whining and dining everyone. And the Tsonaqua figures prominently in those ceremonies and in that spirit of generosity and abundance. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, she's also the cannibal giant who snatches wayward children who are naughty or who are out past their curfew and pitches them into a basket on her back and takes them home to eat for dinner. <laughs> and it's a very integral part of their ceremony and storytelling. Steve and, and I will have to do an episode on that. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard oh, of it. That. It's, That's awesome. it's fascinating because it filters down not just 
I mean, it's very visibly depicted in the masks and the totems of the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. But even here, for example, in Idaho, one of the names given to this creature translates as the eater of children. And it's based on the stories of during a particularly hard winter, for example, there were stories told that Big Hairy Arm came under the teepee border and snatched a crying child and made off with it. Mm-hmm. When I first heard of this, it sounds like a just-so story, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, this is quite fascinating, the parallel. Shortly thereafter, I was visiting with a new acquaintance, and he had been with the Peace Corps in Uganda for several years and then stayed on and became a game warden. And he said while he was there, one of their tasks, they were trying to habituate the chimpanzees in Uganda for ecotourism, like they do at Gombe Stream and other places. Mm -hmm. You know, you go up and see the mountain gorillas. Well, he said, but then they had something that wasn't widely known because it was kept under wraps in order to avoid spoiling the effort to attract tourists. But a chimpanzee had happened along where some workers in the field, a woman had parked her baby in the shade of a bush while she was off a short distance just hoeing in the field. Chimpanzee happened along, snatched up the baby and made off with it. They all ran in pursuit before they could get it back, retrieve it. The baby had been dispatched and partially consumed by the So suddenly a just so story as told by these tribal peoples actually has an interesting analog in the actual behavior of real chimpanzees. And just to show this wasn't just a a story, about six months later, apparently the drought had gotten so bad. See, in this case, it was a drought instead of a hard winter. And it had happened so frequently that they had to address it before the press. In a period of about seven months, there were 12 abductions of toddlers and children by chimpanzees. And so it, you know, it become rampant and they'd gotten a taste for it, I guess, just like they, you know, they hunt uh, monkeys in some places and get a taste for meat. So a just so story to describe a rather seemingly unconventional behavior in a presumably mythological creature actually has its parallel in a living biological great ape. And it's just part of their natural behavior. That's so interesting. Perfect segue. So one of the things we really covered in terms of Bigfoot is I covered some Bigfoot attack stories and a lot of them I don't think are fully valid because if you like dig in deeper, it's like, yeah, this happened, but they're also trying to hide all the gold they're prospecting from other people. But one of the things that I just thought was interesting is see, you probably have a much wider berth of knowledge on this because you're an expert, but from the amount of research I did, it seems like there wasn't this big tradition of Bigfoot mauling people to death in like native traditions until around the 1800s when allegedly it started happening. Is that track that you're saying? Well, as far as the non-native, as far as the, as the Anglo or European settlers coming in, the the stories that we hear repeated where there is that nefarious side revealed things like the Bauman incident that Teddy Roosevelt perpetuated, which occurred here just up on the border between Idaho and Montana. Oh yeah. It did happen around here. That's actually what got me onto that topic. And then more of them. There's that one. And there's the eight Canyon story. Canyon. The common denominator in those two stories is that the humans instigated the antagonism they shot at the sasquatch yeah 
in both cases. In almost every other case, I used to be a scoutmaster for years and years, and the boys, they would ask me to tell a scary Bigfoot story. Well, after you tell those two, you know, what's left? There's nothing really that's scary about it. The sightings are really kind of mundane and boring, but, you know, quite, for the most part, quite in step with what we now understand about the behavior of chimps and gorillas and orangutans. They're really, you know, the gentle giants. They're quite peaceful. I mean, chimpanzees can be rather rapacious and violent and so forth. And there have been lots of stories about that. Well, the earliest Bigfoot attack story I could find anywhere was 1829 in Oka Swamp. Oh, uh-huh. I'm not as familiar with the Eastern lore. So. Yeah. So basically, I, I don't want to read the whole thing to you. Um, I'll sure. plug our blog if someone wants to read it, but I'll give you yeah. the cliff notes. Um, so this is like the earliest account I could find anywhere online. We covered this once. I don't want to go too, too in depth, like I said, but basically these two men and a, a child ventured off into Oka Finoki Swamp in Georgia. And they came across these massive 18 by nine inch footprints and they were frightened. So they went back to town and then they got to drinking and bragging about what they found. So basically what happened is a group of six hunters went in with one of these guides to find it. And after they got two days in, apparently this animal attacked their camp, killed five of them. And they managed to finally like put it down. It was allegedly 13 feet tall. And then the last two men, oh, sorry, it was seven men, six, seven men. Apparently the last two men were so freaked out. They just left the body because they were afraid other things were going to come. It's like, you could have just taken the evidence and like, we would have known definitively that this thing exists. Yeah. Yeah. Come on guys. No one's going to believe your story, but bring something, bring something to be like, look, this is Bigfoot. Right. As you point out, it's, it's hard to judge historical accounts, newspaper accounts like that. If you get some corroboration in other accounts or follow-up stories or obituaries of this five men that were killed, you know. But again, even if you, we can't accept that at face, you've got a situation where you have this hostile mob, armed mob going into the woods with intent to inflict the bodily harm on a wild man, on a Sasquatch or whatever you want to call it in that, that neck of the woods, a booger. So who knows? You know, I, I was going to add that, yes, we now perceive the gorillas as the gentle giants, but talk to the natives there who encounters, especially down, you know, some of the pygmy tribes in Central Africa and so on. When they encounter a, a gorilla, it's not always a docile event. I mean, these are big, huge, powerful creatures and deserve our deference or anyone's deference. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, there are these deep-seated elements to so many of the indigenous people's traditional stories that Sasquatch is a you know a cannibalistic man-eater, that it's an abductor of women and children and men as well. I've actually been taking a much more focused look at the traditional stories in the American Southwest. I'm collaborating with a cultural anthropologist in mm-hmm. And we're drawing upon some of those traditional stories. And, and the themes that emerge are remarkably repetitive across tribal boundaries, but they're also varied. So the things I've already mentioned, you know, sometimes they're tricksters, they're thieves. Other cases, they're helpers. They help out humans mm-hmm. that are in distress. Some accounts, they play a pivotal role in the creation story, the origin story of the human family. Mm-hmm. So uh, it kind of spans the gambit. And that's really not that surprising, I guess, when you think about 
the role of an anthropomorphic figure like this. It ends up then reflecting in that one figure the varied personalities within the human family. Yeah. We've got good guys and bad guys, white hats and black hats. And, and so it seems that Sasquatch as the archetypal wild man at least in the function of a folkloric figure, which can still be based and rooted in a biological species. But nevertheless, in that more literary context, it can manifest a lot of different characteristics that are emphasized for the purposes of storytelling. It's so interesting. Another continuation of that question is, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things that we do when we cover cryptids is, I like to try and not get like the most popular accounts, but I like to find some of the really silly ones where it's like, okay, like in your experience, do you have any on top of your head that are like uh, Bigfoot stories are just so ridiculous and funny that they stick with you more than something that's necessarily like credible? Hmm. Well, one, I think that's funny when, when we're talking about it being a threatening figure and dangerous, there was actually a, an account that was dramatized in a documentary on TV. So it's, I guess that's probably one of the reasons it sticks in my, in my rec- amongst my recollections more so. But fellow was uh, hiking on a trail, and as he came around the bend, he was face to face with a, a Sasquatch, and he was just terrified at the prospect. I mean, it was broad daylight, a very close proximity, and he turned and instead of running back down the trail, he ran right down the off trail down the mountainside. apparently with the Sasquatch in hot pursuit. But because of the broken terrain, he caught his toe and stumbled and fell, did a face plant there. And Sasquatch just stopped and waited as he picked himself up and collected his (laughs) and started running again with the Sasquatch pursuing him, at least for a a distance. But it obviously was not intent on inflicting harm. It was like a bluff charge. It was Mm -hmm. herding him out of the area for whatever reason. I mean, maybe it was purely territorial. Maybe there was a food uh, item, you know. Uh, uh, maybe there was a mate or an offspring uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, sequestered somewhere. But, you know, it, it reminds me when uh, Jane, not Jane Goodall, uh, Diane Fossey described the first gorilla bluff charge that she experienced. And, you know, this massive muscular animal comes barreling towards her and she hunkered down and adopted the submissive posture as she'd observed and it just came to a screeching halt literally two feet short of her but it was clearly agitated it was exuding this very musky odor which she said itself nearly bowled her over it was so pungent but again it's it's mostly if an argument if a confrontation can be resolved through you know non direct contact means then or indirect means then uh, that's the more uh, preferred way to solve it, you know, prevent injury to yourself as well as the object of your aggression, I guess. Well, it's good to know if I fall in a fetal position, if I see a, uh, a big yeah. thing after me, it's not going to maul me to death like a grizzly bear. Yeah. Well, no, no guarantees. <laughs> don't, 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 uh, don't do it on my, my... I just hope, I hope if it does, I hope it's a quick death and doesn't like eat me slowly like a grizzly will. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, um, it's funny because this, this came up once I was kind of a behind the scenes of academia. I was called in. There were some revisions or modifications to some of the federal guidelines for animal use and animal protocols. And my field work, since I was the object of my field work is a living species, 
I was called in to discuss what I was doing, which was limited to deploying trail cameras and hair snags and such. But I was called in to uh, make my case again before this committee. And there were a couple of members that were sniping. They were out to get me, one in particular, and he was harping on all these different possible scenarios, you know, and and he finally, he goes, well, what if these Sasquatch actually do exist? And one of them runs you down and, you know, inflicts bodily harm on you. <laughs> and I said, well, it'll be real easy to get the next grant. <laughs> <laughs> the whole room burst into laughter with the exception of him sitting there with this very consternated expression on his face. He didn't find that amusing at all. But it was so ridiculous. The scenario was that he was... Uh, well, I mean, the scenario wasn't, but his motivation made it ridiculous yeah. that everyone saw through it. But anyhow, that was a funny moment. That's really funny. <laughs> the committee didn't bother me after that. <laughs> and the vice president of research word got to him about it later. And we had a good uh, laugh together over it. So something that you said earlier struck me about classifying Bigfoot as a cryptid. So do mm -hmm. you feel like Bigfoot is a cryptid and do you feel like it's different than something like a Nessie or a Chugacabra? Yeah, the inclusion of Bigfoot in cryptozoology has been kind of a love-hate relationship. I mean, in the sense that it's not really been advantageous. Cryptozoology, the search for hidden animals, the study of hidden animals, has always been the ugly stepsister kind of pushed to the side and never has quite gained the legitimacy that many people feel it's due. And it's largely because people who profess to be cryptozoologists, and anyone can, people <laughs> do not limit themselves to practitioners of zoology, conventional zoology, to take on the mantle or the moniker of cryptozoologist. And as a result, it has often stigmatized as a form of pseudoscience, although it's kind of a challenge to define what pseudoscience really is, except in the extreme cases. So you know, I'm reluctant to refer to it as a cryptid. I don't call myself a cryptozoologist. I was a charter member of the International Society of Cryptozoology, though, as, as a younger person, and I had a lot of interaction with Richard Greenwell in that capacity as treasurer of the society. But now at this point, I don't because I'm not involved with the non-primate cryptid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I draw the line at things that are mythical or paranormal, mm -hmm. <laughs> obviously. I mean, I'm interested in the exploration and discovery of new species. I think it's fascinating. It's always, I think, gratifying every time that a new species is found. I mean, to, to reinforce the comforting notion, if you will, that there are still corners of the globe, you know, or depths of the ocean that remain to be explored. They haven't been everywhere and seen everything. I don't think that there are many things out there that we can point to and say, well, look, if this existed, then Bigfoot must exist as well. I mean, I don't like to resort to that kind of argument or a analogy. I think the argument for the potential existence of Sasquatch and other relic hominoids stands on its own merits and, and mm -hmm. doesn't require us to appeal to those examples. I actually wrote a paper, co-authored a paper with Dr. John Bindernagel, who would be great for you to um, speak with as well, except he's passed, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah. 
but he was a Canadian wildlife biologist and he wrote a couple of very interesting books. The second of which title was The Discovery of Bigfoot. And his premise there is that Bigfoot has been discovered. We know about it. It's not like it's unknown and we know about it. It's just not acknowledged. Science hasn't caught up with the process of discovery. He shows how that process has unfolded. Well, anyway, he and I wrote an article, which is published in the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, that your viewers can look up and read, and points out how it is that Sasquatch was really not served well by being subjugated or subsumed within the broader story of cryptozoology. Authors like Carl Sagan in his demon-haunted world. The ideological skeptics, the skeptics with a capital S, they have a real tendency to overgeneralize yeah. in their statements and you know, push, push some dogma. And one of those is to simply, with no qualification, lump Bigfoot, lump relic hominoids in with parapsychology and UFOs and Bermuda Triangle and you know, unicorns. It's a different topic. I mean, there might be the most superficial similarities. Basically, they're not recognized by mainstream science. And mm -hmm. that's about the end of the similarity. When I open a book like that of Carl Sagan's and see that kind of a statement where he makes those generalizations, it really devalues the rest of the book. There are good parts of it, good thoughts mm -hmm. in it without question. But it's like when you read a newspaper and they publish an article about a topic that you're very familiar with, or it might even be about you, and they don't get anything right, it's all skewed and, and biased and misrepresented, then everything in that paper, all the reports in that paper, you're going to read with a bit of a jaded, uh, skeptical eye. And that's kind of the way it is with the skeptical literature. You know, mm -hmm. I used to enjoy picking up a skeptical inquirer or a skeptics magazine, but when I read their treatment of the subject of Bigfoot now is like, well, geez, I can't trust, you know, I might as well throw three quarters of this right out the window. So what does that say for all the other articles that are written? I have the same thoughts and it also goes the other way too. So we do talk about a lot of things that probably are fake, but we're not critical people. But what gets me is I will completely like write off websites. If, for example, when we did cover the Bermuda Triangle. There's this <laughs> thing like, we know about like Flight 19? Yeah. So I found the actual flight logs. So a bunch of websites were claiming that there was like this talk about UFOs. I found the real flight logs and all those websites I'll never visit again because they interjected fake things into the transcript. And I found the actual transcript uh, and, and there was nothing about UFOs. They didn't see UFOs. Nothing you said is real. It's like, okay, well now I don't care if this is the only fake article on here. I just can't trust anything on here now. Right. Right, right. And that, I mean, that's the problem that we're facing with our, you know, mainstream media in general today is mm -hmm. they're no longer trustworthy. They've been uh, caught, called out on uh, with so much misrepresentation that you just can't trust anything they say. And so, you know, you just have to find uh, ways of, of corroborating stories and facts on your own independent. It's really kind of sad. Well, it's sad. It's pathetic. It really yeah. is pathetic. Yeah. That's one of the potential pitfalls of the proliferation of online media. We point to the importance of peer review and even peer review, though. And I can say this as an academic who's been through the process time and time again. And now, especially as one who has delved into an area that's perceived as being controversial, the reception 
and the treatment, the bias and prejudice and misrepresentation that, that I've experienced, even in academia, peer review is no guarantee. Peer review process is no guarantee that what is published is trustworthy, nor is it a guarantee that trustworthy things will be published is my point, you know, so that the gatekeepers, unfortunately, through their own ignorance or bias or prejudice, serve as a, a faulty filter of information. Yeah, you hate to be negative, And I, I hate, you know, <laughs> I sometimes say, you know, cynicism is directly proportional to the amount of gray hair that you've you've got but it comes with experience that you start to see how these things work but the biggest revelations came as you kind of test and probe by means of presenting information that's perceived by the majority as being unconventional or controversial you quickly then learn how reliable are these mechanisms we put in place for reviewing and vetting the accuracy and reliability of information i have to say i'm quite the pessimist these days you do what you can do but yeah yeah so take a little 180 on this to go more fun route so (laughs) we became good friends with former pittsburgh pirates catcher uh, michael McHenry. when we had him on the show we kind of jokingly said we should go Bigfoot hunting, and he's been really into the idea. Oh, so my uh-huh. question to you is, what tips can you give us to hopefully find a Bigfoot? Where should we go? <laughs> Who should we go with? I'm excited. Like I said, I don't fully believe that Bigfoot still exists, but I love the idea of going camping and maybe seeing it. Maybe my mind will be changed. Yeah, yeah. If it serves no other purpose than that, getting people outside, enjoying nature, learning more about natural history, I'm all for it. When I'm asked that, and I'm asked that fairly frequently, my advice is, as I mentioned, encounters are largely happenstance. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's, you know, the statistics of a very rare, a moving needle in a haystack, Mm -hmm. you, you know, encountering it. Most encounters are purely by chance, but it's like with a lottery ticket. You don't buy a ticket, you'll never win. So the more tickets you can buy, In other words, the more time you can spend in the field, the better off. So I would choose an area that's that has some proximity so you can get out there on a a more frequent basis than a once one in a lifetime, you know, Mm -hmm. offing. And so how do you choose a location? Well, there was a published paper by a fellow named Lozier and his co-authors. I was good friends, or I'm good friends with the acquaintances, let's say, at least, count him as a friend. (laughs) Um, The second author. (laughs) Anyway, the short was, these people do geographic information systems analysis. Mm -hmm. We're writing an editorial evaluating ecological modeling software to show the potential pitfalls of using these models or these software packages indiscriminately, they decided to demonstrate by applying the software to some ostensibly bogus data, namely Bigfoot data from the cold from online. And what came out though, was this remarkably coherent, rational, ecological model species model that that paralleled remarkably closely that of black bears Mm -hmm. and so of course they said you know rather tongue-in-cheek well here's your explanation for bigfoot they're just misidentified black bears you see bigfoot where there are black bears in the woods 
Well, I got a hold of this co-author that I knew, and I, uh, he actually was quite the enthusiast, quite interested in Sasquatch. And I said, what gives? Where's this coming from? And he said, well, Jeff, you know, in the vein of our previous discussion, you should know more than anyone that if we even intimated that there was real data here, that this really showed a, a logical ecological pattern for an unrecognized giant primate, we'd never get this article published. Mm -hmm. So we had to sort of take this tongue in cheek stance. He said, but actually my two co-authors who were very skeptical of Sasquatch when we undertook this, now seeing these results, they're quite intrigued. And in fact, I've got them reading your book, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. So anyway, the take home message from that is there is good empirical data to show that there are similarities in the ecological, the habitat requirements of the Sasquatch versus a, a bear. Now, obviously, you know, no two species can occupy the same niche, mm. but they have similar bioclimatic factors. So if you look at a map, of the distribution of black bears in North America today, I would advise that if a black bear population is resident and thriving in a particular place, then perhaps, perhaps another hmm. large omnivore could make a living in that same habitat. So look on that map, find where you are or, or areas that are adjacent in closer proximity. If there are black bear there, there's a good chance. Now, another thing to look at, not only the range, mm. but look at the population density. What's the health, the abundance of that population? Just having a, a map with areas indicated may not reflect. You know, some of those states back east have, oh, maybe 2,000, 3,000 black bear, if, if that many. Mm. Uh, New York, upstate New York, I would probably wager probably up in, in the 5,000 range. You come out here to Idaho, there's 35,000 black bear. If you go up to British Columbia, there's 110,000 black bear. Mm -hmm. So the density, you know, in those areas reflects the lesser degree of, I mean, the biggest threat is deforestation. That's a way to kind of look at it. Now, there are, I won't endorse or uh, recommend necessarily any, but just so people are aware, there are various organizations that sponsor expeditions if you want to call them that and there's something to be said for those um, you know I've been on a couple with Cliff Berrickman over in Oregon and uh, in an area that's you know had a history of activity you know that was the other thing I was going to add too is you can get online and do your own research and find out look at the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization database just as a springboard to starting uh, yeah. point and see, you know, look county by county and what is the history in those areas? That certainly isn't a comprehensive listing, but it's a starting point. It's a starting point. You want to, I guess you would figure out like what time of year are these sightings happening? We see a trend yeah. there. Yeah, they're pretty um, sparse. I think they're uh, so sparse and so uneven. I mean, any, it, it's really difficult to try to establish patterns, temporal mm -hmm. patterns. You know, people are always talking about they've got, they've established migration routes and so forth. And, you know, they might not even migrate. We don't know. <laughs> well, that's right. We, that's the point is we don't know. So, I mean, because no, and, and any one person who thinks from their own stomping around the woods that they've had sufficient encounters and, and enough data points to establish 
migration routes, you know, interstate migration routes, I think is, is just fooling themselves. They're not fooling anybody else. I hope. Yeah, we're just nibbling around the edges, basically, you know, mm-hmm. as far as what their behavior is. We just have anecdotal accounts that uh, may provide little snippets of insight, but nothing to establish really patterns per se. Awesome. If you want to come working um, <laughs> with us, feel free. Fun <laughs> time. Right. Maybe, yeah. we'll, uh, maybe. So we're gonna. We're like, we should get sponsors. We use Michael for that because he's a baseball player. They're like, wait, why do we do that? People on GoFundMe get like thirty. You know what? Like the Mukele Mokele Membe. Yeah. Some like person in Missouri got thirty thousand dollars just off GoFundMe to go. Just to go. like some random kids yeah. just really? graduated from college. And they all of it. Like they blew all the money like upon arriving in Africa. <laughs> Jeez, I hadn't heard that story. No, I. Yeah, I guess I'm not. Uh, I'm not taking advantage of potential funding sources. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these people were literally like, we know nothing about dinosaurs, nothing about animals, but me and my buddies are going to travel to Africa and document the first footage of a dinosaur. Wow. They raised thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, that's amazing. No plan, just <laughs> that's amazing. We get there. We've got several projects in the offing, and uh, certainly I plan to tap into uh, crowdsourcing funding. But uh, our next big push is going to involve environmental DNA or eDNA. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the a means by which you can sample, say, standing bodies of water out in the yeah. woods and probe. gives you like fish populations and such right and like well yeah but e- even there not only the fish but the runoff from other terrestrial species show up in the water sources as well you can also do you know soil and so forth if we have a, a nest site see and what we've tried a little preliminary test of this with some nests that were found up in washington and got unfortunately inconclusive results unfortunately i mean a very cursory sequence of the human uh, or, or the primate sample turned out to be human in the estimation of the researcher. Although mm-hmm. I discussed with him the possibility that we're missing by not testing exhaustively enough the sequence, a species that's very, very similar to us. That's kind of in the offing. I've lined up some collaborators and a lab that's really willing to come on board to run the samples and we hopefully will start collecting samples next summer so i may be putting out a couple of uh, crowdsourcing proposals hopefully it'll let us know get a, we'll, just get a result we will uh we will pump those out there for you just let us know yeah. just an email we'd love to do that for you. yeah no but i mean people can raise like thirty thousand dollars i imagine right. with no information looking for dinosaurs <laughs> i guarantee you can raise some money look for bigfoot yeah you would think so you would think so anyway we don't want to hold you too much longer so i think we're going to start wrapping up so where can people find you and where can they find your books and anything else you want to plug right well i don't have a web page per se other than my faculty web page i do have a a facebook page under my full name don jeffrey meldrum where you can see i you know I'll, i'll use it like a bulletin board and post interesting things i'm not a real uh religious uh uh poster on a regular basis, but my book, uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. It's available on Amazon. It was published in 2006, but still very pertinent. I think it's a great starting point. Not only my 
conclusions and my evaluations, but it builds upon many of the experts that were recruited for the documentary of that same name, Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. So there are many voices singing the, in, that, uh, in that volume. It's also available at Paradise K, parak.com. That's with a C, P-A-R-A-C-A-Y. Mm-hmm. I point that out because they are the publishers of my two field guides. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you point out, one, one uh, is kind of a how-to, you know, if you go on your expedition, you'll definitely want to have one of these. Oh, for sure. It's a good <laughs> trimmer for how to identify and collect and document and report all these different types of evidences. The second then, in the vein of relic hominoids more globally, casts the net more widely and uh, consider Sasquatch in the context of other forms like the Yeti or the Russian Almas or the Chinese Yeren or the Orang Pendek of Southeast Asia and so on. Paradise Cave is a fun site to visit because they have quite a lineup now of Bigfoot related items, both research materials, um, you know, various books and novels and so on, but all kinds of other interesting little doodads, uh, uh, metal magnet art and so forth. So it's kind of fun to visit there. It's awesome. Great. Oh, and, and finally, just the, the relic hominoid inquiry for those that are a little more academically minded or not. I mean, it, there's lots of pictures. I mean, I, one of the nice <laughs> things about, about an online journal is we're not saddled with page costs. And so publishing nice, bright colored figures is very uh, feasible. So it's very easy to find. If you just Google the relic hominoid inquiry, or at uh, www.isu.edu forward slash RHI. And it has solid research articles, essays, essay length book reviews. So if there's a book you're interested in getting, you, you know, more of an academically inclined book and you want to know what others in the know have thought about it, mm-hmm. uh, look at that. Uh, there's other news items and, and so on. So it's, it's uh, lots of good resources. We're in our 10th year now. So the, the uh, accumulation of submissions has really grown. And oh, and like historical uh, papers too, translations, otherwise inaccessible papers like those of Mary Jean Kaufman, the lead researcher on the Russian Almas. This is the place to go for, for the most uh, definitive works on that topic, for example. So mm-hmm. there you have it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. So this is a really weird segment. I found this story online. So basically, there are these underground tunnels in South America, in Africa, a few in North America that have been identified by different people around the world. And this website seems to conclude that those underground tunnels and sometimes underground cities are all connected via a worldwide tunnel. Okay. Okay. This is wild. I'm, I'm into it. I know. It was really cool. So <laughs> I also think it might have been like Google translated because some things straight up did not make sense. <laughs> And some words were just like, what are you talking? So basically, it all started when there was NASA scientists and French scientists 
looking around in, again, South America, the Sahara, different parts of the world. And according to this website, they found underground cities Mm -hmm. and sometimes thousands of kilometers of tunnels to the point where they were like, it's too far. We can't keep going in this tunnel because we'll like run out of oxygen. So it's been like prophesized that they are all connected throughout the world. Are these cities real? What? Is underground cities actually real? According to this website, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I say that because I did try to do research to see like i tried to google this elsewhere and i did not really find much but i think either way it's a good story all right story is all that matters and i'm going to link to it in the bio and some of this is definitely real there definitely are underground tunnels in south america from past civilizations the incas Mm -hmm. the maya you know they have they definitely have underground tunnels so that's real Mm -hmm. so Where this gets a little crazy is that some people think that these tunnels, based on what they look like, were created using very advanced technology. And that's because they would be connected under the ocean and stuff that we really haven't figured out yet and would be way too deep for us to actually dig underground. And also in some of the tunnels that they've looked in, it's like scorched around the edges, but like all the way around. So that means there would have been like some kind of fire going all the way through. And according to this one Polish researcher, Yang Penyan, he believes that that is because UFOs have been using the underground tunnels to zoom through the middle of the earth and Mm -hmm. get from point a to point b which to me why would they just fly over doesn't that seem faster yeah i mean and couldn't they have just invented i don't know faster ufos yeah if they've already gotten here and they figured out where all of our underground tunnels are that just seems a little a little excessive whatever let's pretend that he's right well yeah we'll keep going then there's this other journalist and scientist his name is richard Shear, and he has this american magazine called amazing stories and it deals with paranormal aliens whatever so this guy richard Shear, alleges that he has not only been into the tunnels and the underground cities but he has lived among the creatures that live down there and he described them as mutants similar to demons Ooh. so i don't know why the hell he was living down there with demons and why he stayed and how he got out how do you even get down there isn't there not oxygen i think he was in a part of the tunnel that was not too far in okay and then so he claims he like put this in the journal and then all of these people started sending him letters like oh my god i actually had a very similar experience and some of the stories that he collected were they were able to control people on earth 
from their underground cities. Mm -hmm. They had super advanced technology. Yet a lot of crazy stories come in. Now I'm going to talk about how these civilizations got there. Again, this is kind of it's like Google translated. So give me a second. So basically what they say happened was way, way back in the day, like early human times, there was either a high technology human civilization or an alien civilization living on Earth. Then a meteorite comes and crashes and it gets to the point where it is unsuitable for life up it on earth. So what they have to do is go and build these underground shelters. Mm -hmm. And they already had this advanced technology, so it's not too hard for them to build all these underground tunnels. Then these underground tunnels become, so depending on which side you fall on, either the aliens just happen to find these underground tunnels that mm -hmm. humans made or there were already aliens and the ufos come in and out so it kind of got to a point where they had been there for so long and there's like different pressures different climate and over generations they become accustomed to living underground and now they really can't live on the surface. So that is why some people believe that this guy, Richard Shear, described them as like demon people because they're very different and they have like different adaptations than we would. Mm -hmm. And then there's also stories that they would, this goes against what I just said about them not being able to come up to the surface, but separately, there are also stories that they will come up to the surface to steal children and bring them down into the depths to like live with them. Oh, like not to eat to like no to punish to steal, their numbers. To, like, bring bring to their civilization. So just like to replenish the numbers. Interesting. Yeah. We start um, eating them. Hopefully not. Let's hope. So then this this is where it just kind of goes off the rails. So. <laughs> No good conspiracy theory is complete without some element of Hitler. Actually, it's right. Like he always, he just has to show up at some point. Okay. So what? So far we have Elvis still alive and Hitler. We have the Denver airport and Hitler, Hitler, this Hitler birds aren't real. Hitler. Oh yeah. Obviously we didn't talk about it then, but. I don't think, but I did see an episode of Ancient Aliens that linked Hitler and the aliens. So literally that too. Yeah. I think you're not wrong. I think there has to be Hitler involved or it's not a conspiracy. Right? I feel like every conspiracy theory we've covered, there's some some connection to Hitler. Which means I need to connect Hitler to, uh, what's his name? <laughs> We're going to cut this out because no one can know my uh, conspiracy. I'm going to leave that in. The original vampire. I'll cut this all out because no one can know until it's ready. I haven't uh, worked on my theory at all. I had, to, I had to do that this week. So I guess Hitler, according to this conspiracy theory, Hitler was very confident that there were certain aspects of the earth that you could live in and 
quote, house people from the past. So it sounds very hollow earth to me. <clears throat> By house people from the past, they mean like bring historical figures back to life? Well, I think it means similar to the Elvis and Hitler live in Antarctica conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Like people have gone underground to avoid being killed or. Mm -hmm. Okay, I get that. So in 1942, there is this guy, Professor Heinz Fischer, who's looking for an entrance to an underground civilization that was proposed to be in the Baltic Sea. And mm -hmm. this was funded by Nazi Germany. And so according to the conspiracy theory, he did find the underground civilization, but it was completely empty. So they kind of took it over and they used that underground series of tunnels to place radar devices to spy on people in like enemies in different parts of the world. That's it. That's the whole conspiracy theory. That's interesting. I mean, it's certainly a conspiracy theory. It's just interesting to me how there are a few theories about Hitler wanting to live underground or like thinking about people living underground. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's kind of random. Maybe Hitler was really into underground stuff. That's a really interesting trope that you brought up with these. Like Hitler and conspiracy theories go hand in hand. I'm having trouble thinking of conspiracy theory that doesn't involve Hitler. I mean, the only one I can think of is the JFK assassination. I'm sure you could find something linking yeah. JFK. Oh, I guarantee it. Try to think any other conspiracy I can even think about top of my head. I mean, no, that, that's not one I talk about. You, you know the one that we don't touch. Well, that but I, I think that is linked to Hitler. Seriously? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Nazis for sure. How? Okay, whatever. So we're gonna not talk about that because uh, I don't like giving anyone a platform who thinks that way. I bet QAnon has some fucking Hitler links somehow. New World Order, I guarantee they can... I thought them. we were just talking about QAnon. I was talking about 9-11. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, fuck the 9-11. We're not on the same page. No, we're not on the same page at all. That's why I said something. I wasn't sure we were. I bet QAnon. i trying to think. I don't know. I mean, I think, like, seriously, all these conspiracy theories are linked to Hitler. I wonder why that is. Like... Maybe it's because he's, like, an evil person. It's like, who's the most evil person we can think of? Hitler. Let's tie everything to Hitler. It's true. All right. So thank you guys for listening. That was a really fun episode we had. Yeah. I really enjoyed talking to uh, Dr. Jeff. Sasquatch expert, finally. Yeah. So that was really fun. And yeah, everyone, again, please leave us a voicemail with your stories. Uh, they don't have to actually be your stories. They can be secondhand stories. We don't care. Send us ghost stories. Oh, so we want ghost stories, alien, cryptid stories, urban legends, anything spooky. Yeah, just feel free to share it with us. We'd love it if you did. Our phone number is 914-627-8582. Again, thank you, Valerie, last week for sending in our first voicemail. That was awesome. Yeah. And again, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your preferred platform so you never miss an episode. And also, we now have Reddit. It's r slash Misfits and Mysteries. Join the community and... We'll all stay in touch and become friends. 
Oh, also, we haven't done this in forever, but if you like our show, we'd really appreciate it. Donate it to our Buy Me a Coffee page. You can find that. The link's in the bio. You can also buy our merch. I don't know why we stopped plugging our revenue streams. That's stupid of us. But yeah, you can find all that stuff in the link in our bio. Someone actually purchased a t-shirt from our store. I don't know who it is, but thank you so much, whoever you are. You you rocking the swag. Yeah. I don't, was that you who bought this shirt? No. It wasn't me. It was not me either. I wonder who bought it. But thank you whoever did that. And now, Emmy, where can people find us? So people can find us at misfitsandmysteries.com. That's where you can find all of our episodes, our blog, our fan art page. You can sign up for the newsletter, all of that good stuff, and stay in touch with us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at podcast underscore misfits. And really anywhere else you're on the internet. Just look up Misfits and Mysteries, YouTube, Facebook, wherever you hang out. Yep. And as always, stay spooky, Misfits. Stay spooky, guys. Bye. Bye.